0: My name is Gianni Russo, AKA Carlo, the infamous son-in-law from the Godfather. I'm now known as the Hollywood Godfather, and this is my story.
1: Before all of the wins in my portfolio, I was a little boy diagnosed with polio. Experimenting
2: with cures, I tried every one. Felt everything in my right, but my left was numb. Walking with a limp, like will I ever run? Once again, or is this it? Am I
1: forever done? Living in the hospital was never fun Some people were cool, but not everyone You never know who you're lying in a room with So I broke a broomstick in half and let it groove with The concrete in the bathroom floor It had a new tip, stashed it behind the toilet In case I ever had to use it Cause one day Dolores had a chat with me
0: Said she got. Speak softly loud and hold me up against your heart i hear your words the tender trembling good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome to hollywood godfather podcast i don't know how many hours we have up in the hundreds thank god and my co-author and my friend pat piccarelli is here
2: How are you doing, guys and girls and gals and and, women
0: and and ladies? Oh, you got to include every gender now there is, you know, trans. And they and them and us and Trans and us and who and we. And and, uh, we have a very special guest that uh, Pat knows well, and I'm going to give him the honors of introducing him.
2: Okay, everybody. uh, We are in the street. You know, uh, we get a lot of emails on this podcast, people asking me about... uh, what did the NYPD used to be like? So I, I can give some examples, but uh, I'm by, uh, I by no means have the experience and the, uh, some of the situations, in fact, most of the situations that our guest Ralph Friedman was in. Now, before I introduce him officially, I'm going to give you a little background. You know, you've heard the term super cop, I'm sure, before. In fact, there was a, there was a movie in the early eighties called The Super Cops and the word is bandied about, uh, so it becomes useless after a while. It's like calling a football player a hero, you know. But there are super cops on this job. I'm proud to say that I know one of them, and I was that is our guest tonight. Uh, we've been friends for years. I wrote his book. I Well, we wrote it together, Street Warrior, uh, that was published several years ago. And... Uh, this would be the first time for our listeners to see him in person, and it's the first time I'm seeing him in person. Really? Really, we did. Well, uh, true. Well, That's true. it's an experience you and I had. I, I I wrote your book over the phone.
0: True, true. Yeah, I, I, should, I, I shouldn't be shocked, shocked like that. That's <laughs> right. I didn't meet you either.
2: Oh, <laughs> well, Ralph and I had a couple of close calls. I mean, I, I was going to New York and then book parties and things got canceled and whatever it was, but Anyway, uh I'm gonna get, get to know him a little bit uh better than I already do tonight. So without further delay, uh I introduce you to retired detective Ralph Friedman, late of the NYPD. Welcome to the show, Ralph. How are you doing, Pat? And uh Gianni, thank you for having me.
0: Oh no, man, it's our pleasure.
2: Honor. You know, we were talk we were talking about all- over the course of several shows. Like I said, people are asking questions. What did your job used to be like?
1: Well, it was a different world. We were taught different in the academy. Uh, the training was different. The people
2: on the street, the atmosphere of the country and the attitudes, everything was different. Well, if you came on the job the same, about the same time I did, and it was a difference in, uh, in uh, p- police work, uh, which was then proactive, we... Very, very proactive. We got rewarded for going out and looking for trouble. I and mean, if, if there was a problem, if there was a crime to be found, we would actively go look for it. I mean, if you, if you made good arrests, if you had, uh, 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 in fact, if, if you got, in, in TPF, if you, if you got three DUIs in a certain length of time, not you personally, but if you arrested three DUIs, you got uh, you got time off they rewarded you you were told to go out there and raise hell. That's a reactive police department rather a proactive police department you go there looking for things now that's all changed when we were turned re- out when we were turned out at roll call uh,
1: politicians uh, dictated uh, uh, not dictated but wanted and the police department and the commanders wanted bad guys off the
2: street. Well, they still do, but they, they don't want to admit it because they have to play to their constituents.
1: Uh, well, but when, they have some way of admitting it by tying the hands of the police, you know, and changing the laws.
2: Well, let's talk about some experiences, some of the things that you went through. I mean, I was on the same job you were, but I mean, some of the uh, uh, experience you had even impressed me and shocked me. Now, there was one particular one. that You weren't on a job that long. You and your partner were in an epic gun battle, uh, and you have to understand about gunfights in the seventies and eighties. They were not all that common. Now, there, uh, every time somebody uh, uh, shoots or fires a weapon and doesn't mean to hit anybody or draws a gun, it's it's a story in the paper. Intimidation and uh, you're picking on people. Then it was a, it was a common occurrence. I, for one, can't recall ever going on a job, and I worked where Ralph worked, South Bronx. Where I didn't have my gun either out of my holster in my hand, or at least unlocked and uh, ready to grab it. Try doing something like that now, and you're not going to be on the job. When we pulled over cars, we folks doors. We always had our gun drawn. Yeah, not not anymore. <laughs> they won't let you do it. Okay, well, what I want what, what I want you to, to, to tell the uh, tell the listeners is about that particular day. When you and your partner—and forgive me—I I wrote the book years ago, so I forgot his name—went into that building, and he was wounded to the point yeah. where, to this day, he holds record for blood transfusions. The, 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 the officer was shot so bad, he took seventy-two pints of blood to keep him alive. Wow! But tell us how that—tell us how that day started. Well, it started.
1: I was assigned to a court case. I had to go to the Bronx Criminal Court, and uh, I got out early. So what we do is we head back to the precinct, well, I head back to the precinct, and uh, you get teamed up with a a different partner in that. 12 noon, and we started patrol, and it was about two in the afternoon, about two hours after patrolling around, we get a, uh, a call comes over the air from communications of a burglary in progress. Now, normally, we wouldn't pick up these calls because uh, our job was to find crime on our own. But in a busy house such as the four one, you back up the officers, uh, uniform officers, who respond to that call. So a unit picked it up, and we picked it up as backing them up. But we went to the scene first. And as going to the scene, the call escalated from a uh, burglary in progress to a girl screaming for help. And in that situation, that makes it sound like they were burglarizing a house and the occupant's home, so it's more like a home invasion, right? <clears throat> so we got there first, and we proceeded up the stairs, and it was the top floor. And when we got up to the top floor landing, we saw one of the doors of that la- of that floor opened about six to eight inches, and damage to the uh, the door frame. So we proceeded into the apartment uh, slowly, but we heard a girl screaming, right? So now we had to proceed a little faster. But when we had got in there, it was two in the afternoon, but it was pitch black. There was sheets and curtains and uh, blankets, everything covering all the windows. It was totally pitch black. And we didn't know exactly the layout. So we were going by hearing the girl screaming and what we found out a little later was that we entered into, like, a living room area. There was a kitchen off to a left, and straight back the narrow hallway was a bathroom facing you and a doorway off to the right. Uh, but we didn't know this layout when we were there in the pitch black and hearing a girl screaming. We both had our guns drawn. We were shoulder to shoulder, and we went into this hallway. And the hallway wasn't, you know, very wide, like maybe four feet wide. Uh, and all of a sudden a man jumped out from that right side doorway which we later learned was the bedroom and uh, we couldn't even see him because it was pitch black and we saw a muzzle flash he just opened fire on us three feet away we returned fire and the place started lighting up from like strobe lighting from all of us firing and I saw my partner get hit he was to my left and as he was going, Going down, he opened fire, and I returned for the muzzle flash, too. And it had this strobe light effect, and the bullets were ricocheting in this hallway. Later found out that my partner took five direct hits and two ricochets. And the perpetrator tried to run past me, and he ran right into me. I grabbed him. He had no shirt on. And I grabbed him by the skin of his trap, holding him in position there. And I had one round left. And I fired that when it was pressed up against him, and I shot him right in the heart, killing him there. And my only concern at that point uh, was my partner, who went down. I didn't feel that I got shot or anything, but officers were flooding in. Pick up the radio and called the 1013, officer shot. But officers that were responding to that burglary already were there because they were only seconds behind us. And we decided immediately the best course of action was to carry Officer Kalunga down the stairs, five flights, and get him into a radio car. And while this was occurring, uh, all units called for highway to block all the intersections, even though a radio car goes there with light and sirens on. But they closed off every intersection so they didn't even have to slow down to make sure. And that went
2: uh, right to Jacobi Hospital, oh, you, uh, Ralph, he, Ralph yeah. let me interrupt you for a second. You had a hard time getting off that
1: block. Yeah, uh, but I was going to get there. As they got him into the car, and we had all these radio cars blocking off intersections, uh, the cars that responded to uh, Fox Street uh, made it difficult to get the car out that was holding him. He had to bang into a few cars, bumping them out of the way to get onto a street that was a clear road to get to the hospital. You know, he had to get to Bruckner Boulevard. You know, and uh, uh there was some uh, hitting of cars going on to move radio cars out of the way. Those guys were scrambling to the cars, but, you know, all the cars look alike, and everybody, it was a massive response. Once I put it over the air and office it was shot. So we get to the hospital, we get him in there, uh and he went in right into a surgery, obviously. And he needed 72 pints of blood, which, you know, your body only holds about, I think, somewhere between six and eight or maybe maybe that's why i
0: was wondering when he said that earlier because the body don't even hold that much blood
1: yeah it was pouring out as they're operating they're pumping it into it that's why i made medical history and uh the mayor was notified of this and he took a helicopter he had the aviation unit fly him over to jacoby hospital and landed on a street pelham parkway and he wanted to talk to me and Uh, before I was going to hold a a press conference in the hospital. And uh, it was Mayor Lindsay. And he was... uh, I I love that mayor. He was a great mayor. He was was, uh, definitely concerned about the office of my partner's condition and what shape I was in before I went on a press conference. That's a great story. So, you know,
2: that, that incident alone something, of course, that you'll never forget, but you had similar incidents after that.
1: I uh, had many shootouts that I remember but, distinctly. Well,
2: as I recall, uh, you were in 14 shootouts, you killed four people, correct?
1: I was in 15 shooting incidents, two of them were with dogs, 13 with people, and I shot eight perpetrators, killing four of them. There you go.
2: I lose track of all these numbers, you know. Uh, but anyway... <laughs>
0: I, I love the story, though.
2: Jesus. With, you know, with the Mayor, with the Mayor Lindsay incident... Uh, it was not uncommon then for the mayor, whether it be Lindsay or who preceded him, to respond that way to a police shooting, even though. Powell, yeah,
1: they've always done.
2: Yeah, they always. They, I mean, the police commissioner and the mayor. To take yeah. a helicopter and land it on the street. I mean, you know, thinking about uh, under what circumstances would that happen now? And the answer is that will be never. If the mayor shows up, well, I can't speak for this mayor. I can only speak for uh, uh, the last few mayors. For them to even show up, uh, is uh, they think is something that they have. You know, to do. it's such a different world today,
1: Pat. Yeah. I mean, if you see the last police commissioner who was sworn in by today's mayor, Eric Adams, was sworn in under a mural of cop killers and terrorists. Yeah. Oh,
0: wow. You know, I mean, it,
1: it's a different... I, I don't know how the good guys came the bad guys, you know? And then you get guys like uh, George Floyd. They're making statues and
2: making heroes out of career criminals.
0: I can't believe that. I mean, that, that, that well, makes sense. it's
2: unbelievable. You know, uh, uh, the, the house, the station house, the precinct where Ralph worked is infamous. And maybe you can call it uh, famous, whatever uh, adjective you want to use. Uh <laughs> There was a movie uh, made about that precinct called Fort Apache, the Bronx, with Paul Newman in the 1970s, yeah. but it was called Fort Apache for a reason. And you have to picture the area. I mean, uh, I, I, I worked there, Ralph worked there, and I, I tried to do the best I could describing the... Uh, you did the best job anyone could do, Pat. The, the, <laughs> the, the desolation in that area. If you ever saw pictures... Of, of of london after the blitz this looks what, like pictures of ukraine today yeah exactly that's what the south bronx looked like it was just like another world you know i mean uh, uh the, the the south bronx was another planet unto itself but there's some me. actual actual
1: real footage that was uh rented when i was making the tv series street justice the bronx and it's sprinkled throughout that series
2: which well, is available get,
1: on Amazon.com. Now.
2: Before we get to that, let's let's get the listeners uh, accustomed to the area and what you were working in. Tell everybody how the Fallen Precinct got the name Fort Apache. Well,
1: it got the name around sixty-eight or sixty-nine. Uh, the precinct was under such severe attack, and uh, this was way before precincts were ever attacked or even thought of being attacked of people attacking the police station and they were throwing bricks and bottles. Then they started to burn a radio cars, and stuff. In this was never occurred. And there was a desk officer who was a very well-known desk officer named, uh, Gittins and, uh, Lloyd, uh, uh Lloyd, Gittins. Lloyd Gittins, very tough cop, very knowledgeable, very tough cop, very good boss. He was a Lieutenant at the time. And, uh, he would scream at cops and put you in your place, but he never would have heard a cop. He was actually a great boss, right? And he was on the phone while the precinct was being attacked, and he was calling in a borough 13, which means requesting more cops out of the area, from out of the area that was covered by a few precincts. And the borough asked him, how bad it is, it? How bad is it? And he said, it's like Fort Apache over here. And that name, when the officers heard it, it just stuck. And it stuck all the way, to, you know, for like over 50 years now.
0: Let me, let me be devil's advocate just for our audience. Why was that one particular precinct so under attack and nobody could do anything by, by well, then?
1: A lot of criminals lived in that precinct. It was a violent area at the beginning, you know, racked with robberies. It was the highest uh, homicide rate, uh, you know, crazy uh, robberies and all kinds of incidents that went on there like it was uh it was like the outpost of the Bronx you know it was the outpost of the city it was uh it, it, we led the city in everything in those years
2: robberies rapes uh assault stabbing Murray, shooting, you know when, when 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 we worked that precinct we had a work we had we had a patrol with our helmets on because you know, so you'd be walking down the street and people would be throwing stuff at you and I mean I mean toilet bowls I that I, was I, the uh Got the nickname of getting airmail. There you go. I mean, you know, you expect maybe... you know what, what people would do is they would get a cachet of bricks, bottles, anything that they can throw, and they put it on a roof, call in a in phony store. call, yeah. and then here we come, and that was a TPF, we would, you know, back people up, but we were on foot, and we had to wear our helmets, and I tell you, and I, I, I would expect, you know, bricks, bottles, it was just a normal day in the one precinct, but... A commode narrowly missed me by about a foot. A freaking toilet bowl. That's and if wild. that thing would hit me on the head, I, I don't think I'd be here <laughs> doing this podcast helping <laughs> a toe helmet, no helmet. No. I mean that We've been a they, hell of a way to go.
0: Hello. <laughs> you, you, <laughs>
2: ask, you, you ask what makes what makes Fort Apache different than anywhere else in the city? It was just surreal. To go in there every day and work is surreal. You never stop. So to give you,
1: to give you a couple of examples.
2: Yeah, first
1: yeah. of all, they had sector cars that went up to O and P, and each, like, you know, you get sector A, sector B. it went all the way up to O and P. We had the most radio cars covering all area of land, and we had the most cops. We had 425 officers assigned to the 4-1. and on the third floor, they had 200 TPF, which Pat worked out. That's 625. Men in one precinct, and that ain't counting all the other units that worked in the borough or the division poaching, which means they were always coming over to the front to make their arrests and get their uh, activity because there was so much going on. What the was place it? was like it was like a, a packed subway car of crime going on all the time. It just, what was it?
2: Uh, give everybody uh, an idea of, of the size of the precinct. So you're in a sector. I worked in a lot of precincts. In, in my it time. was like and a two-mile square. A two-mile square. Yeah. That's, what? The, that's and, the precinct.
0: The precinct and is 2 miles square. Idea. If
2: you
1: came in for a 4-12 to 12 tour on a Friday or Saturday night, you would get the car, the radio car, when I started out as a rookie in 1970, you would get the radio car with the light and siren on And it's backed up with 20 to 30 jobs that are still like you know heavy-duty jobs. You got to keep going to, but you get the car with the light and siren on, and you would go all night with the light and siren on because that's how busy it was. The average from shooting to stabbing, from stabbing to homicide, from homicide to robbery, to store being held up, people being mugged. It just went on and on. And how
0: long did that go on though? That spree crime. What's that? How long did that spree of crime go on?
1: Well, it went on to approximately 1975 because then they started, it was so bad that landlords were abandoning their buildings and the junkies were using them as gang headquarters, shooting galleries and ripping out the plumbing and it just started, it started to dwindle down because then they had to burn everything down because, and then it slowed down because people moved out because there were no buildings
2: left. It was really bad. Wow. Now, an average size, uh, just to give you a, a, an idea of the, the patrol size, the precinct's two square miles. Now an average precinct, let's say in Queens, you do have a sector that you're responsible for. You're in a car. It can go a mile or two in either direction that you have to patrol in any one given tour. And the in, in the four one is if I'm not mistaken, you got like three square blocks.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah.
1: And that was it. Yeah. That's how much coverage there was, and it still wasn't enough. And you're working, and you're hearing gunshots, and you're responding, and then there's other gunshots in another direction. It was like the Wild West. Wow. You know,
2: you got you started to get a reputation, uh, obviously, with the shootings and the arrests. I mean, you know, to this day, your record stands. There's six six thousand arrests. I mean, is unheard of. Well, but... so I made over two thousand in my name alone, yeah. and then I made
1: over, like, 4,000 assists, helping other officers bring people in or, you know, helping them on the street. And then I made, over, I made 105 off-duty arrests.
2: I know people that go through their entire careers and go make <laughs> 105 on-duty arrests. That's right. Uh, you got involved in everything. I was busy. Well, you know, it's also...
1: <laughs> there was a lot of components that made that up. You know, first I was gung-ho, and it was also uh, the way I looked with the tags and the muscles and the t-shirt and tank tops and a motorcycle. I mean, that also helped my career. And when I was off-duty, they didn't think I was a cop on duty, no less off-duty. So guys were offering me guns and drug sales. And I also was lucky to be in places where things were occurring. I made off-duty arrests anywhere from larcenies all the way up to a double homicide. Wow. You know, I believe.
2: Let's uh, uh, hold it up there, Gianni. Let's go to a commercial and make
0: some money. All right, we'll be right back. And we know where you live, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. cordley Vodka on March 9th was picked as the best vodka for martinis in the world by the Rob Report. By calling 518-713-4050 or 518-220-9463 it could be shipped directly to your house. The finest vodka in the world by Rob report All right, we're back.
2: Okay, uh, there came a time, uh, Ralph, in, in your career when you started to get a reputation. Uh, these well, I-, I got a reputation
1: pretty quickly because I was pretty quick with my hands. And uh, I wouldn't let any, any uh, perpetrator or uh, Person on the street disrespect myself or an officer. We always gave respect. In You know, if you give respect, you get respect. But there were a lot of guys on the street. There were tough guys on the street. There were gangs on the street, people that wanted to fight cops. But uh, they got their due, you know. Not like today they abuse police officers. And, uh, you know, with that incident about two years ago, they started throwing water on officers. Today they fight officers at the throw of a hat you know, uh, they would fight officers, I mean that wasn't uncommon but they knew
2: they were going to get their due, you know there also came a time when uh, you were the target of a hit, you were going to get murdered and you were not totally unaware of it
1: yeah, that's uh, that's going to start from that from the beginning yeah well, the part with that was, I was dating this girl right? that I met really pretty Spanish girl And we were dating for a little while, and it got to the point where, you know, we were going to go, we were going to have sex. So she invited me to her house, and we had it set up, and I wound up making an arrest that was going to tie me up, right? So uh, I told her, you know, we didn't have cell phones and stuff, it was hard wire phones, and I told her I'm going to be tied up, and she was very disappointed, and she kept calling at the precinct. And I said no, I'm stuck. I got to voucher this. I got to take them to court. I got to process this. And uh, she was real upset. And I said no, well, I'll see you in a day or two. You know, you know, my next night off. And the next day I come into work, right? And we're driving around, me and my partner. And the boss, the squad boss, gives us a ten-two. We had no a ten-two is report to the pre. With, and being that with are detectives. Better a report to his office, right? And uh, I had no idea what it was. We go upstairs, get back to the precinct, proceed upstairs, and we're walking into the office, and we see uh, two guys in suits uh, in the office with the boss. So right away, your mind goes, it's internal affairs. You know, IAD is there. And uh, so we get there, and the boss turns to my partner and says, uh, you can go back on patrol, right? They just wanted to see me. So my partner heads out. You know, direct order from a boss and no a choice. And the squad boss sits me down and says, and he introduces me. And it's uh, a detective, and uh, I think it was two detectives or a detective and a lieutenant from uh, Intel Division. I say, Intel Division. And he says, uh, Yeah, do you know this girl, uh, Lucy? And I, I said, Yeah. And I'm like, My head's spinning now. And they said, Did you have a date with her last night? Now my, my head's really, how do they know these things? You know, it's like only 24 hours early, right? And they said, I said, yeah. And they said, well, she had two or three guys in a closet in her apartment, and knowing you were going up there, and they were ready to kill you. Wow. And like, my head spin. And I catch my breath there, and I say, what's going on? You know? He said, well, she's a stepsister of a guy you killed uh, like nine months ago or eight months ago. And that was a separate incident. That wasn't the one I killed in the story I just told. It was another shooter, which I'll get into. But this was my girlfriend was going to have me assassinated.
0: Wow. Did they they arrest her?
1: Back to the incident where me and my partner made an arrest, right? And it was a perch snatch, perch snatch. Uh, So we got the guy in the precinct. And it was near the end of our tour, right? So I took the arrest, and my partner went home because it was, it was the end of tour. And he went home, and I was going to process the arrest and take it down to central booking. So while I'm doing the paperwork and processing this arrest, a guy comes in to precinct, which was one of my CIs, a confidential informant. And, you know, you get – there's a lot of range of a CI. You know, you rate them, and there's a range of, like, from 1 to 10. You know, and if your guys are 1, you know, it's a it's nothing. If you got a guy that rates something 8, 9, or 10 – that means he's giving you information and eight times out of ten or nine times out of ten, guys information's on the money. So this guy comes in, and this guy's like my best CI. I mean, he's like a 10. You know, everything he tells me pans out, right? So he tells me he's got a guy selling the gun. So I proceed to tell my boss, I go in, I say, listen, I'm processing an arrest, but I got a CI here, who's my good CI. And he's telling me he's got a guy selling a gun. We got to act on it. So the boss says, I'll be your partner on this case. Right? He says, you take control. And the squad boss was a sergeant. He says, I'll be your partner. So I said, okay. So we get the information. Uh, We decide that he's going to meet this guy. He has a time already. We tell the guy, you're going to go up there. supposed to meet on a rooftop. We tell him, you go there. And we'll be watching you from another rooftop of buildings that are connected. We go to the beginning of the block. We climb up the fire escape. We don't go in the front. We figure out a way to get to the back unseen. We climb up the fire escape. And we're going to watch uh, this transaction go down from a few roofs down. And the plan is we'll move in when the CI has possession of the gun. Figure it's in safer hands. that'd be the best way to handle this deal. Right? So we get up in position. He he goes up there. And right away when he gets to the roof, and we got position, we got eyes on it, we see uh, two things go wrong right away. The first one is that there's two perpetrators on the roof, not just the one he was supposed to meet. second thing we see is that it's not a handgun. He's got a long arm. He's got a 30-30 30-30 hunting rifle, right? So we still say we'll go with the same plan, me and my boss, and we'll watch until uh, he gets hold of the gun. We figure some safer hands, and uh, then we'll move in, right? So we stick to that plan, and right away that goes south. The perpetrator, before he sells him the gun, wants to prove to him that it's an operable gun. And he starts leaning over the roof and starts firing this thing indiscriminately like a sniper. Wow. So we have no choice but to move in. Now we're like four roofs, four or five roofs down. They're all connected by like a like a two foot or two and a half foot parapet where you jump over. And that's you know the, the difference of each building. So we start running that way, screaming, police, freeze, right? And now, the guy turns the rifle on us and lets one go. And the, the the CI, smart enough, he hits the deck. He just goes down on the floor flat, right? And the other perpetrator, who we don't know who he is or what he has, he runs behind like this chimney or kiosk type of thing. Looks like a chimney and it's on the roof. So we're Running towards the guy who fires at us, we open up him and I shoot him two times him in the hip, that spins him around, and I shot him in the ass. He goes down, drops the rifle. We get over to the scene and uh, we see the guy is down, the perp uh, is down from two wounds. We kick the rifle away, right? And the boss screams, The boss kicks the rifle, screams to me, Go get the other guy. So I proceed over this, and now I just fired all six shots. So I pull out another gun, and I always carry two guns while working. And I'm going around this bend where this kiosk, chimney-type thing is, and I can't see him. And I turn the corner, and right there he is in front of me, and he's got the knife raised, as you can see what I'm doing with this, the knife raised above his head, and he's going to stab me in the head when I turn. My finger tightens on the trigger. Before I could even pull it, I hear a shot go off, and my partner shoots him in the back, right? He goes down, and now the boss screams, get the rifle. So I go to cross this guy to get back, and the guy who my partner just shot starts to get up with a knife to stab me in the stomach. And I shoot one. I fire around shooting him in the stomach, killing him right there. And then I proceed to go and get the rifle and secure it and, uh,
0: so, two guys are dead already.
1: Place. What's that?
0: Two guys we are dead already.
1: No, the first guy didn't die.
0: Oh, okay. All right. The
1: second guy yeah. with the knife died. Him and killed immediately. The uh-huh. other guy, like I said, I shot him in the front <laughs> hip and then he spun around and shot him in the ass. He survived. The guy that I killed with the knife, who my partner shot first and I shot second, he died. And that was... This girl's death run. Oh. Oh, okay. Asked why the girl wanted me killed. She made it purposely that I would meet her, we would talk, pick her up, she dated me a few times and I was supposed to go up to her apartment and she was gonna have me assassinated. You have no you yeah. had no you had no idea. No ideas. This came out she played it for a while. Yeah. You know, we went to you know, we went to the movies, went out to dinner a few times, we hung out, you know, it was just Escalated to that point where now we were going to get together physically. And uh, I went up to a house. I was going to go up to our house. And that's where it was planned.
2: Thank God. That that happened. Is, uh, what what no police officer wants to go through is have his partner, somebody that he works with, killed in a line of duty. And we have uh, one episode at the end of the book where uh, Ralph discusses what he went through and the race to get to Kennedy Airport. To get the perp off a plane before he fled the country. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Let's let's, you know, let's go through that. I mean, it's you know, it's a horrendous thing to have to relive. But
1: well, I was off duty at the time, and uh, my unit, and it, this was a guy I was partners with, but then we switched partners around, and he was working with another officer. Uh, this is, his name was Kenny Mann. And he was working with a guy, Erwin Black, and <clears throat> I was off duty. And I heard on the radio about a shooting in the Bronx. An officer shot. Then I heard he was in the four one precinct, and I was getting ready to go down it, right. And then my phone rings, and it was my squad boss calling us in, and uh, uh he told us to come into the precinct. We went. We raced down there. His name was. Uh, uh, Sergeant Battaglia was the head of our anti prime who called me, and we get down there. He tells us Kenny Man was shot and that he was killed, and he assigned people to do all different uh, assignments. And my assignment was to take three officers. I was driving and go to the airport and stop the plane. And I made it from the four one to Kenny Airport in about 14, 12 to fourteen minutes, which is it's unheard of. We went through the toll booths. They had toll booths then, not like they do now. All oh, they had cameras. Uh, the toll booth guy was almost sucked out of the booth. <laughs> went there. It was like a vacuum almost. Uh, and we went, got out there. In those years, you could drive onto the tarmac. We drove right up to the planes uh, and uh, ran up. There wasn't the plane. He wasn't on there. He was later found on a, on a roof, uh, hiding by officers. You know, but uh, it was. A, They were going on a a, a rape case. It was a rape and robbery of a girl. A very serious rape case. And when they got into the whole, they went into a whole, uh, an alleyway, uh, no, a courtyard going into a building where this perpetrator was supposed to be. And it wound up, see how people like Pat described before, how guys wait for you on the roof and stuff. Well, they were guys on the roof, except this time they had guns. And they opened up on the offices, and they shot Kenny Man. Uh, from the rooftop, and Erwin uh, Black, Black tried to save Kenny's life by having his fingers in the holes that he took the bullets in, but he couldn't stop
2: him—you
1: know—from dying. Wow! That
2: took me. That took me. A lo- you know, I write fast, as you two guys can attest to. When I got to that chapter, I, I could—I had a very difficult time getting through that chapter. And uh, and what you went through. Uh, I mean, we, you know, all, all the time I spent TPF, in fact, all the time TPF existed, we lost one cop, uh, and that was at, uh, Columbia University. He got dragged away on, a uh, making a car stop. Guy rolled up a window and dragged him for like 10 blocks and killed him. But, uh, to, to witness something like that and the adrenaline pumping, driving all the way to Kennedy airport, it didn't stop for hours. It just oh, kept, no. kept on going. It was,
1: it was a terrible time. I and mean, you... Anytime we saw an officer shot, or you respond to the hospital to your blood, or, you know, that's the only time it makes you think for a minute that, you know, it could have been me, you know. And when you, you know, otherwise you're going full speed ahead. But you're and you're thinking, you say, it, it's such a terrible thing to see an officer because it's so easy to be any officer or myself.
2: You know, uh, you had an illustrious career, but. You know, people probably think, you probably spent 30 years on the job. Who's going to make all these arrests? Where did he get the time? How many years did you actually put in?
1: No, I actually only did 14 years. But t- tell us how you came to an abrupt end. You tell
2: us how your career ended.
1: Well, I was, I just got back from vacation. And I did a motorcycle trip with a few guys and my brother. We just came back from Virginia Beach. And I went into work. And, um. Uh, I was still vibrating, you know. I used to do most of the driving. I probably did ninety percent of the driving. Uh then my so I let my partner drive. Not that it was full, but we were we, uh, we were patrolling around and about nine thirty that night we got a a single ten thirteen and officer needing help call because it was being called in by the officer himself. So you always have a tremendous response and a very quick response uh when you get a ten thirteen, even if it's over nine eleven or from CU, but this was from an officer himself. But you always have a quick response because, you know, you don't know if it's real or not. But we were responding and we were driving west and we were going to get to the end of the street and make a left to go south. Before we could make that left, there was a radio car. We were on an unmarked car. And a radio car being driven by a rookie, not that it was fault either, but he was heading from the south going north. So before we could turn to go south, he T-boned me. Never touched the brakes. He needed thirty feet of rubber in those years for the accident investigation squad to tell how fast the car was going. He couldn't even tell because there was no rubber. Never touched the brake, and at that top speed, he probably doing about seventy-five, hit wow. me right in the door, right in the hip there.
2: No, really? Ralph. Uh, before you go, I mean, you spent a horrendous amount of time in the hospital, and we'll touch it was in a there Almost three but, months. But. Do you think that your sirens drowned each other out?
1: Oh, definitely. The sirens and, uh, uh, you know, there was other sirens in the area, too. But I'm sure those two sirens, ours and theirs, coming into that intersection. Uh, You know, plus, you know, we don't know who had the light, you know. But uh, there was a lot of contributing factors. uh, and, And, you know, the accident occurred. How badly were you hurt? I broke 23 bones. I shattered my right hip in 100 pieces, and I broke my pelvic, left, right, upper, and lower. Jesus. All the officers were hurt, but they were treated and released within 12 hours, and I got stuck in the hospital two and a half months. Wow. Then you catch a lot of stuff in the hospital. You know, I didn't get a surgery. I didn't get any stitches. I didn't get any surgery because I had a lot of muscle on my body at the time, and what they did was they had me in traction, but they took me out every day, to see if any of the bone, any of those chips, the whole crack of the hip, if any of the chip would have fell into the socket, then I would have needed a total hip replacement. The doctor said I might have lasted, I might last two years, or I might last 20. And as of this uh, uh, podcast, um, just hit, I just hit 39 years on August
2: 1st. I like My to blessed. say that you're wow. indestructible, but I, I don't want to say that. <laughs> because you <want> to say <laughs> Okay, yeah. so you—you you wanted on to the say
0: you're indestructible.
1: Yeah, I was indestructible. There. I've been yeah. lucky to dodge bullets and perpetrators. And the ironic ending for this whole thing is, I got hurt by my own guys. Wow, they did what the perpetrators—all <laughs> those perpetrators I ran into couldn't do.
0: So obviously so, you retired then.
1: Well, then I, that's what put me out. They put me off on a disability because I. There were certain things I would never be able to run and chase per- 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 right, right. perpetrators again. Uh, wouldn't be able to do the job correctly. So uh, and it uh, took me a long time to be able to walk. I left the job in a wheelchair.
0: Wow, that's amazing! And uh, and, and when did you get your mobility back?
1: Well, uh, I was three months in the hospital. I spent a few months in a wheelchair. Then I went to crutches. And during the crutch of time and stuff, I had to do therapy. I would say it took me
2: well, well over a year before I could walk around.
0: Wow. Well,
2: that was an accident. Yeah. Okay, so you retire and uh, you had a television series. Yes. Uh, uh,
1: actually, it was thanks to you also. Uh, while you were writing the book, there was some, uh, before the book was actually published, there was some um. Uh, promotion about it, and a girl going to work, she I forgot if she was, I think she was on a bus or a train, probably the bus, but she was a producer that worked for a uh, production company. She read the, uh, you know, about the book, and she when she got into work, she told her producers, her bosses, that I, we got to get into contact with this guy, and they started doing a show about me, and they pitched it to a few channels. And Discovery picked it up, and we had one season, uh, six episodes, and uh, it came out on Discovery. And then in during the uh, after three episodes, it was picked up by ID, which I think actually hurt me because there was a lull in between, and I lost the momentum. And then it came out on ID, and now it's actually on uh, Apple TV. It's on demand. And Amazon
2: Prime. What's, What's the name of the called? show? It's uh, called Street Justice: The Bronx. Rumor has it, Ralph, that you're that you're doing some modeling. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I've done a few things.
1: Uh, yeah. I I did. a I was a, a model for a new company that just came out. It actually, I don't even know if it's fully out yet. But I did the modeling for their sweatshirts and T-shirts. On a blue line that they're going to have within this company, which is called uh, Feast, and you can follow it on Feast 2022 on Instagram. And I've also done some technical advising. Uh, I was lucky enough to get involved in the Many Saints of Newark, which was a prequel for The Sopranos, and I did uh, four scenes on in there, and I got my name's in the credits. And uh, I taught one of the main actor how to shoot a guy. I don't, know how, I don't know how they figured out how to experience that, <laughs> but they that. And uh, I set up some uh, gambling scenes and stuff with Tony Sirico I worked with, who wasn't in the movie, but uh, he, he uh, recently died. Yeah. And also with Ray Liotta, I helped set up a scene with him. And I met them both and uh, spoke with them both great guys, by yeah. the way. But Ray Liotta passed also.
0: I know so many guys. I'm, I'm, I've known six uh, gone in the past. You know,
1: in a short period of time.
0: Well, yeah. I, I mean, know, and yeah, some yeah, of them I mean, they they didn't they even like. Paul Savino, Jimmy it. Khan. They're all dead. I know recent. you
1: dealt with most of them.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: They're all going in a small period of time. It's very, uh, I don't know, very strange. And You're not really old. old. So,
0: I mean, Ray was in his seventies. You know,
1: really, seventy no. ain't that old today, though.
0: I know. I'm eighty. Really, hello.
1: Ray Liotta was 67.
2: I'm going to be 74, right behind you. There you go. Yeah, Johnny, Ray Liotta was 67. I know. Young guy.
0: I know. Anyway,
2: Ralph, what what is in your future? Well, one day, my goal is, uh, you
1: know, I keep promoting the book and I keep promoting the TV series. I'm hoping one day to get a a motion picture. You know, I had a few bites, but they weren't, uh, um, you know, they weren't the right ones yet. I'm always trying, I always
2: keep promoting. Well, you have enough s- stories in you and enough experience to fill several books and a lot of movies.
0: Yeah, I mean, even well, you know, a, 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 a series uh, would be amazing. I, I could see- Well, we go.
1: also came into a lot of things that worked against me. We had um, the COVID worked against me. Then we had uh, the George Floyd and the anti-cop thing and the Michael Brown, uh, the, set, the anti-cop sentiment. I had a lot of things working against me uh, in the years uh, following uh, the publication of the book and the TV series. Well, that's
2: starting to turn around.
1: Well, I'm hoping things turn around. That's what I'm waiting for. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I, I, I tell you, Ralph, the past 50 minutes, I mean, just flew by. Uh, we usually only do 40, but uh, you, you have, I tell you, you're, you're quite a guy. And I'm glad we finally got a face-to-face. This is the first step going out and having a couple of drinks. Yeah, I mean, and The I'm, funny thing is, I can't see you guys. I, well, you know, uh, I do, the good I news...
0: Wanna, uh, listen, uh, thank uh,
1: you, Pat. the bottom of my heart, Pat, your book was absolutely fantastic, and I feel it definitely put me on the map. I was known, but not nationally, thanks to your book, you know? And you're a great writer. You're a great friend, and thank you very much. And Gianni, I want to thank you for when the book came out, on the off copy before the book came out, if you did a burp, a blurb for my book, I do appreciate oh, that. Oh no, please! And thank you for having me on the show.
0: No, no, I think you know. Once this show, this new show that Joe taped me tonight, we're we're starting a whole new medium with video and audio, so people are going to get to see you, and I think your character as a person is definitely sellable in the medium. And anything we do, we can help you with it. I mean,
2: absolutely. I, I we, we're doing so, so yeah. much.
0: It's crazy.
1: I wish
2: you well, too, Johnny. I know you, uh, you're doing great. Thank God. Well, yes. I tell you, Ralph, I, I, I don't know what I could do, which is probably not much, but the Johnny has helped so many people. In fact, we had somebody on the show a couple of weeks ago, and Johnny is helping this guy with his career, uh, and that wouldn't have happened without him coming on the show. So, uh, you know, once this show airs, uh, things may happen, and we're here for you.
0: And Ralph, let me tell you—that's yeah, that, 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 who I, know, I am.
2: I know you're.
0: Yeah, no, know. You know, everybody's I know you always work. helped me.
1: Yeah.
0: Always, people. Ralph, always people came to my side and helped me, and that's I try to do it any way I can. Especially with a story like this. It's not <laughs> you just need to write door open. That's all. The, this is a great story. Well, you
1: know, I always wanted to write the book. You know. I never had the right connection until I met Pat. You
2: know,
0: That's great. No, thank I'm God. It, thank um, God I met him too. Is you know by
2: a mutual, you know, everything everything worked. You know, you, you have what you have. You got your life. You have the book. You've had a TV series. You're doing other things. Now you got to get a little lucky, and perhaps. You yep. Know, exactly. Yeah, certainly, I'll do anything that I possibly can. But you're going to get a lot of exposure here within the next couple of weeks. So we'll see what
1: That's happens. Uh, no, no, I appreciate it. No, thank but you. But Pat, you've always, Pat, you've always helped me over the years when I had to do a speech or write something. You're always there for me, Pat. You don't have to tell me now. I'm not I going certainly know.
2: Any- <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. Well, thank you very much, my friend, for being on the show. We really appreciate it's it. great privilege. My, uh, my honor and my pleasure. This is going to open up quite a few people's eyes when they realize how it used to be. Great. Yeah, you know it's got to turn around because, you know, what are we going to do? Revolve
1: all the way back to a caveman or the jungle or what? What's going decent at? people, <laughs> decent people have to respect the police, and criminals got to fear the police. That's yep. how well, the system has to work for civil for civilization.
0: It's always worked that way. <laughs> it had to work that way. Oh but the
2: last two years have been devastating.
0: Oh, it's crazy! It's crazy. Okay,
2: okay Ralph, you have a good night. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, you. and
0: really a, pur- a privilege having Bye. you. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Gianni. Right. Thank you very much.
0: All, our audience, will thank you all. And as Pat and I always say, without you, we have no show. Tell your friends, write the cards and letters. That's how we respond. We get material. As you've heard, numerous shows were created by you and telling us what you wanted to hear, and we did it. Pat, good night, my friend.
2: That's
0: night. good Bye. night If you're feeling sad and lonely there's a service I could render I'm the one who loves you only I could be so warm, so tender. Call me Don't be afraid you can call me Maybe it's late, but just call man. Tell Thank me. Thank you for
2: I'll tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather Podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself, Megan Haran, with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com, which is where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Remember to follow us on Instagram at HollywoodGodfather and on Facebook, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your messages. Call
0: me, don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be around. I'll be around. Seventeen. It was a very good year. It was a very good year for small town
1: girls
0: and soft summer nights. We'd hide from the light. I didn't mind.